The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. How you guys doing? Good. Still waking up? I, I see summer's still got its grip firmly on you. <clears throat> For those of you who may be new here or visiting, um, my name is Jeremy Neff. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, and it's uh, my privilege to bring to you the Word of God this morning. Before we get there, though, uh, I've got a few announcements to make just to kind of keep you guys in the loop of things that are going on here and ways in which you can engage and get plugged in here at Heritage. So, uh, first of all, the For His Glory Women's Retreat, uh, the sign-ups for that end next Sunday. And this is going to be a tremendous opportunity for, uh, for gals to come and hear uh, from Craig and Stephanie Strom as, as they talk about their journey literally from death to life. And so that's going to be uh, September 16th. It's a Saturday from 9 to 4 here in the sanctuary. Also, uh, the Heritage Basics class <clears throat> is September 9th, which is also a Saturday. This is the Saturday before. Um, and that will take place from 9 to noon. Now, the Heritage Basics class is an opportunity for those of you who would like to become covenant members at our church and, and really want to understand, like, the inner work is how does the church function? What is our goal? Now, every church sort of has its slot within the body of Christ of areas that they're ministering and things that they're doing. What is Heritage's? Uh, is, that a, is that a word, Heritage's? I don't know. Heritage, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, what is our identity in the, in, in the body of Christ? What's our philosophy of ministry? How do we see things? What's our overall goal? What's our hope for the body of believers here? Those are all things that Pastor Jeff will communicate with you personally at that meeting and give you an understanding of, of who we are as a church. So uh, if you're new here and you're wanting to become a member, uh, please make sure you sign up for that at the info desk on your way out. Also, Awana registration started up August 13th, and um, Awanas will kick off in September. I believe it's the 13th. It's a Wednesday. Um, so uh, you can sign up for Awana in the kids' wing, and this week is the last week to register before uh, we open registration to everyone. So here's what's happening. Because we have limited space for Awana, if you want your kids to be involved in Awana, we're giving priority to our church first to be able to get your kids plugged in. After this week, though, we lift that ban and, um, and we're going to open it up to the public and lots of neighborhood kids and people from other churches and everything will be wanting to sign up and, and get plugged in. So please make use of that. Last but certainly not least... The flip side of 50 has a dinner for six. Sign-ups end today for that. So if you're a part of the flip side of 50 or want to be a part of that and sign up for that event, uh, dinner for six, uh, that sign-up ends today as well. And you can do that also at the info booth. Feel free to peruse that yellow sheet of paper so you can kind of get a, a snapshot of what's happening at Heritage and and, uh, and hopefully understand what's going on. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you need a Bible this morning, please lift your hand up high. We have Bibles here and one of our, uh, our ushers will come and, and take care of that for you and make sure that you have a Bible. If you don't own one, that is our gift to you. Um, 
If you want, just need a loaner, that's fine as well. So when you get to 2 Thessalonians, put a ribbon right there and then, and then flip over to Acts 17. That's actually where we're going to get our launching point this morning. We're going to read through the, the founding of the Thessalonian church. And while you're turning there, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you that you are here with us. That your desire is to commune with your people. Lord, if, if we come here and we only hear words of truth, or moral lessons, sing a few songs and offer up a few prayers, but we don't actually meet with you, then our time really has been fruitless. So Lord, we invite you right now to soften our hearts, to give us the humility to listen for your voice and to respond. God, I pray that you would draw us by your spirit and that the words on these pages would come alive to us, Lord, that it would be as though you were here speaking from the pulpit yourself. So God, speak. Your servants are listening. Our hearts are attuned to you. We are willing and ready to obey your word. We ask this. In the glorious name of Jesus, amen. 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 So the Thessalonian church, we are now at the very tail end of the two letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, to the Thessalonians. And um, as we are traveling through there, we're going to be in verses chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 5 today. And I've titled this message, Still Standing. There's basically four points that we're going to visit. Paul's rejoicing over the Thessalonians in verses 13 through 14. Paul's reminder to the Thessalonians in verses 15 to 17. Paul's request of the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And Paul's reassurance for the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. But before we get to that, and we start to exposit those verses and really break down like what is being said there and then how, do, how does that apply, what does that mean to us, I thought it would be good to, to revisit some of the history of the Thessalonian church. And, and I think it will add context and life to what it is we're trying to understand about this passage. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1, you can read there with me the story of the birth of this church. Verse 1 says this, And now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So three Sabbath days, that could either mean that it was four weeks, uh, depending upon where he landed on the Sabbath, or it could be three weeks, right? A, a, a minimum of three weeks. He was explaining and proving that it was necessary, again, from the Scriptures, he's reasoning, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, or the, the Jewish Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying that this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He is the Messiah. 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the, some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, now this is the key part right here, you ready? Saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go and then Paul and Timothy and Silas make their way to Berea and leave Thessalonica. Now, something radical happens here in Thessalonica. You see, Paul comes in and he, he, he first goes to a Jewish synagogue because there's a common understanding of the Word of God and Scripture and it's the easiest place to have a sort of starting point to begin to talk about the messianic reign, the, the kingship, the authority of Jesus. And so he begins to reason with them from the Scriptures saying, this has always been God's plan since the very beginning. This is what he was wanting to do. This was his desire to accomplish these things. And so, Thessalonians, you need to know that this Jesus, the one I'm telling you about, is the promised Messiah who would come. And a radical change takes place in this group of people. In four weeks' time, or three weeks' time, a church is born. And this church that is born is, is fledgling. They, they, they know very little. I can't imagine that he exposited the entire Old Testament in three weeks. I, I, I don't imagine that he did a verse-by-verse -verse study and, and broke down and taught them you know, a hermeneutical approach for understanding the Old Testament, a theological grid by which to understand everything. I can't imagine any of that took place. They got the gospel. That's what they got. They got the foundation that God was sending His Son to die in our place, to be raised from the dead, to ascend to His throne and become king for all of eternity. That's what they got. Now, when this change takes place, the Christians there in Thessalonica have an immediate decision to make. Why? Well, because there's a competing Lord. There's a competing Lord. You see, in Thessalonica and in Corinth and in virtually every major city in the Roman Empire at that time was a, a, a marketplace, an open-air market. This is where people would come and they would sell their wares and their goods or their crops or whatever that they, they, they had to be able to make money. And to, to be able to buy or sell in the marketplace, you had to sacrifice to Caesar. 
And, and, and this is what you would do. You would go to this altar at the opening of the marketplace and, and there there was incense to be offered and in the presence of Roman soldiers, you would burn incense. They would take ashes from the incense and they would, the way that you would mark yourself that you had paid homage, that you had, that you had done what you needed to do to be able to buy or sell in the marketplace is that they would take the ashes from the incense and they would wipe it on your, on your forehead or on your hand. Does that sound familiar? And so here's what's happening. These early believers are faced with a dilemma. Do I go to the altar, sacrifice to Caesar who claims that he is Lord? And they would have to say this, Kaiser, Caesar, Curios, Lord. Caesar is Lord. That's what they have to say. And these early believers, their question is, do I take the mark in order to buy and sell? And do I proclaim that Caesar is Lord? And they couldn't do it. Amen. These four-week-old Christians got to a place where they said, no, Amen. I can't. Not Kaiser Curios, Jesus Christus Curios. Jesus Christ is Curios, is Lord. And in the midst of that, this group of people is saying, essentially, this is going to cost us in order for us to, to follow Jesus. We have to put, we have to be all in, all of our eggs have to be in one basket. You see, for them, to believe in Jesus wasn't just a, like, a, Jesus is this accessory that I add to my life and all of a sudden life is better, it's, it's enhanced. I feel more joy, I'm happier, things are, are generally better for me. No. For them, to proclaim Jesus is Lord cost them greatly. It cost them their financial livelihood. It cost them their reputation and meant that they were ridiculed publicly and made fun of as atheists, believe it or not. They were called atheists. Matter of fact, I was, last night as I was thinking about this, I was reading some, some stories about having to proclaim Kaiser Curios. The story of Polycarp came a, across one of my search engine uh, pages. And, and I thought, you know, I, it's been a long time since I read, so I just read through the first-hand account of Polycarp's death. He lived in about 147 AD, I think was his martyrdom. He was one of the last living disciples who was a direct disciple connected to one of the apostles. He was discipled by the apostle John. And I think he was around 87 years old. I don't remember the exact age, but uh, Polycarp is brought before the council. First of all, he, you know, his, his disciples are trying to hide him and squirrel him away. And finally he hears that the, the Romans are coming for him. And, and so what he does is he goes down and he makes them a meal. <laughs> and these, me these, these soldiers come in and, and, and as he's making them a meal, he's caring for them. They're, they're, they're like, why are, we, why are we on this manhunt for this old man? You know, this doesn't make any sense. But then they bind him, they, they, they take him, he goes before the council, and there at the council he's told to recant. Say, Kaiser Curios. Say it. We don't even care if you mean it. 
Say the words. Deny the Lord. Polycarp responded, These 87 years has God been faithful to me. I cannot deny him now. (laughs) See, this was the state of mind of these early believers. Jesus is Lord. And it cost them dearly. It cost them everything. So now if you turn over to 2 Thessalonians with me, I want you to see something. I want you to see how often, how often Paul doesn't just call him Jesus and doesn't just call him Christ, but uses the title Lord. Okay? So let's start out chapter 1. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Kyrios, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord, the Kyrios, Jesus, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Kyrios, Jesus. Verse 12, so that in the name of our Kyrios Jesus, uh, so that the name of our Kyrios Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Kyrios Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 2, now concerning the coming of our Kyrios Jesus, are you seeing a pattern here? You see, you see the proclamation that it's happening? It's a dividing line in their national identity. We can no longer serve Caesar as Lord. We can no longer say, this is my identity. We can no longer say, this is my home. I am different. My allegiance is different. My motivation is different. My heart is different. There is one Lord, one King, one throne for all eternity. And I'm either submitted to it or I'm I'm pushing against his authority. Throughout 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, you will see the title Lord emphasized again and again. And this letter then is a reassurance. This is what sets up this letter to the Thessalonians. This is, this is why Paul is writing to them. You see, because, because first of all, he was sort of surprised that they were that they were doing so well. In First in Thessalonians, he writes to them, he says, I cannot stop rejoicing and praising God for your faith. I was with you for like three weeks, four weeks. And, and the word of God worked in your lives. Here I am, I'm gone, I'm absent, and your faith is continuing in the midst of persecution, in the midst of distresses. You're continuing to walk with Jesus. You have believed the truth of the gospel. And and, and Paul is sort of like, this is the hand of the Lord. This is amazing. This is not me being an excellent preacher, or this isn't about the quality of our programming at church. This is about the working of the Spirit of God in the lives of these people. And here, Paul is overjoyed to see that the Thessalonians are 
continuing to walk with Jesus. And he, and he writes about his rejoicing in the first letter, but in the second letter, as often happens with new believers, questions begin to come in, attacks happen, and somewhere along the way, they got bad information. You see, they had departed from their allegiance to the Roman Empire and the Roman system of worship. They had become atheists in the eyes of the Romans that they didn't believe in Caesar as God or Caesar as Lord. They'd abandoned that for a faith in Jesus. And they're suffering for that, but then they get this information somewhere that somehow they had missed the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus. They're like, wait, 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 the, the, the king came back and we, we missed it? Is that because we're way over here in, in Thessalonica? It, it, how did this happen? What, what's going on? And, and Paul is writing to them to say, no, you haven't missed it. Don't worry. When the day of the Lord comes, it won't be a mystery. Amen. You'll know it. You're going to see it. It's going to, it's going to be something that's tangible. You don't worry. You didn't miss anything. God loves you. And here's his message to them. Keep on standing. Keep standing still. Don't give up. Don't abandon the faith. Trust the Lord. So after he straightens out things about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and the Antichrist, and a few things that they needed to understand and believe, he now begins to exhort them in chapter 2, verse 13. And he starts out with rejoicing. And so in verses 13 through 14, we see Paul's rejoicing over the Thessalonians. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here Paul's rejoicing over the Thessalonians. He rejoices. Why? First of all, because God chose you, he said. Because God chose you as the first fruits. F.B. Meyer, regarding this verse, says this From the beginning, who shall compute the contents? of the vast unknown abyss which is comprehended in that phrase. The beginning of creation was preceded by the anticipation of redemption and the love of God to all who were one with Christ. Man, that's good stuff. This plan, his desire to save, his choosing of his people predates creation itself before there was time or matter or space or energy or any of it. There was God and his plan. His plan to save and to redeem his people. God chose you, Paul says. And he says he chose you as the first fruits. What does that mean? It's like if you have a garden. 
And, and all summer long, you're, you're, you're watering and you're caring for this. You get the sprinkler going, the timer, you're just pulling weeds. And, and honestly, gardens are a lot of work, aren't they? For those of you who grow them, you, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about Southern Oregon gardens. I'm, I'm talking about you know, tomatoes and vegetables and stuff. You have to say that. It is Oregon, right? It's a lot of work. But then comes the moment where you start to see fruit growing, right? You got a nice, big, fat, green tomato, and you're, you're watching it, and then it starts to turn like a little bit yellow. It's not green anymore. It gets kind of orangish. The color's coming on, and you're just waiting for that moment when you grab a hold of that thing, and it just breaks off almost immediately in your hand because it's soft. And you, you ever had, you guys know, a garden tomato can never, ever be compared with a store-bought tomato. They, they're just amazing, right? Those garden-grown tomatoes. He says, that's what you guys are like. The first fruits. It's, it's the anticipation that more is coming. You're like that first beautiful tomato that gets plucked from the vine. And God has chosen you. you, you this group of people that I met with for four weeks... He chose you to be the very first ones of all the harvest that will continue to come from the work that God will do in and through you. You're the first fruits of that harvest. And he's just rejoicing in that reality. He said, you're the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, it's interesting here that salvation through sanctification is linked. Salvation and sanctification is linked. The two actually really do go together. Those who claim to be chosen, God picked me, but lack evidence of sanctification or separation from the world and unto God are on really shaky ground. You know, we can't see if a person is chosen. They don't get a tag. There's no, like, tattoo or secret handshake or anything like that. We don't know if somebody's chosen, but we can see the fruits in their life. We can see that they are being separated from the world. L- let, me, let me tell you what Spurgeon said about this. It's such a, such a good quote here. He said, had it been possible for you to have had salvation without sanctification, it would have been a curse to you instead of a blessing. If such a thing were possible, I cannot conceive of a more lamentable condition than for a man to have the happiness of salvation without the holiness of it. Happily, it is not possible. If you could be saved from the consequences of sin, but not from the sin itself and its power and its pollution, it would be no blessing to you whatsoever. And so he says, by the working of the Spirit, God has separated you from this world system. He has made you different. He's changed your desires. You are different on the inside. And, and I, have, I can take no credit. It wasn't my discipleship program. It was the working of God's Spirit in you. You started obeying and listening to God, and you were changed. By the Spirit and belief in the truth. You see, he rejoices, first of all, that God has chosen them, but also, verse 14, he rejoices that God has called them. 
And to this he says, he called you through our gospel, through the message of Jesus as king. And as a result of that, you now are eligible to obtain so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ at the last half of verse 14 there. By the Spirit and belief in the truth, God's work of sanctification uses two great forces. It's, it's the Spirit at work and our belief in the truth. And the Spirit of God and the Word of God are essential to our sanctification and our salvation. But then... On top of that, once that work is, has started and completed, then there's this upward call in Christ Jesus. There's this continuing pattern of continuing to offer more of ourselves to the Lord until we obtain, listen, we obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. And this mortal body puts on immortality. And this corrupt flesh puts on incorruption. That is our future destiny. And Paul rejoices over the Thessalonians as he reminds them of those things. Not only does he rejoice, but we see also Paul's reminder to the Thessalonians. Verse 15, So then, brothers, stand firm. Let's just stop there for a minute. Stand firm. Why? Why, why, why? why do we need to stand firm? Well, remember, their faith is being shaken. Did the king forget about us? Did he miss us in some way? We, we were getting these letters and this information. And it conflicts with things that we've heard from Paul and from, from, from our time with him and, and the letters that he's written. What, what's going on here? And they're, they're, they're beginning to be shaken. And he says, stand firm. Get your, get your footing underneath you. Stand firm, verse 4 of chapter 1, because of the current distress. Chapter 1, verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness in faith and in all your persecutions and the, in the afflictions that you are enduring. In other words, stand firm because I know that you're going through some hard stuff. Just keep standing. Stand firm because of the coming judgment. Verse 8 of chapter 1. As he's talking about the coming of the day of the Lord, he says, In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Stand firm because God is coming, the King is coming, and He's going to judge the earth. He's going to make it right. What's been broken will be mended. Judgment is coming. Stand firm because of the strength of the coming deception. In chapter 2, verse 9, in talking about the last days, verses 9 and 10, it says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wickedness, or with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. There's this deception coming. There's an apostasy in the future, in this last time, where people will depart from the faith. And some of that's brought on by this character, the Antichrist, this mysterious character. Some of that is brought on by the spiritual temperament of the world. But people are going to fall away. And when they do that, I just want you to know, you need to stand firm. And stand firm because of our glorious destiny. In verse 14, to this he called you, 
through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that future glorification is coming, stand now. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Keep standing. And so Paul's reminder to the Thessalonians is, first of all, stand firm. How, Paul? How do we do that? How do we stand firm? Well, he tells us right here. And hold to the truth. So then, brothers, verse 15, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, the word paradosius, which we render tradition here, signifies anything delivered in the way of teaching, and here most obviously means the doctrines delivered by the apostle to the Thessalonians, whether in his preaching or private conversation or letters that he had written. So he says, cling to those truths. Be anchored to them. Grab a hold of them. Don't let them depart from you. Hang on to them. What truths, Paul? Well, in verses 16 and 17, he prays for them what truths he wants them to stand firm in and hold on to. He says this, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good, and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So here's the truth he wants them to hold on to. First of all, inward truth. Inward truth. He says it right there in verse 16. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. God loves us. That's the first truth he wants us to hang on to. To be anchored in. God loves us. Well, what proof is there? Jesus put it this way, John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no man than this, than that he would lay down his life for his friends and sacrifice his life for his friends. And then he looked at his disciples, and I believe looking through the halls of eternity to every person who would come to Christ, he said, and you are my friends. He loves us. He loves us. Second inward truth that he wants us to grab a hold of is that God gave us an eternal comfort through the gospel. God gave us an eternal comfort. And the third thing, third inward truth that we're supposed to grab a hold of is that God gave us a good hope through grace. So God gave us an eternal comfort. What eternal comfort? It's been rightly said that if a believer has a Bible in their hand and it should happen to fall to the floor. That it should immediately open up to Romans chapter 8. Because in Romans chapter 8 are contained the benefits package of the believer. Everything that we need to know that God has given us contained in Romans 8. And it starts out very first, very first verse. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's what that means. It means that our past sin does not stop God from loving us presently. 
When did he choose you? Before you had a chance to sin. When did he pursue you? In the midst of your sin. When you wanted nothing to do with him? When you were shaking your fist at him? When you didn't believe and you thought it was implausible and you denied the things that you knew and you suppressed the truth? When you wanted your sin more than you wanted his lordship? He loved you then. At that point. Your past sin does not hinder God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only that, but our present is in His grip. Verses 26 to 28 in Romans chapter 8 talks about the reality that even presently, what's happening right now, God has put His Spirit in the heart of believers. The third person of the Godhead living in His people. God knows every secret part of your heart. Everything that is inside of you. And, and what does He do with that information? Well, he tells us. He groans on the inside and he interprets the deepest places of our heart directly to God the Father and he makes intercession for us and prays for us and longs for our wholeness. He loves us. Not only that, but that's inside of us, outside of us. God is working every circumstance and everything that we go through together for our good. For His purpose to shape us into the image of His Son to bring His glory into our lives. God is shaping us and redeeming even the most tragic things that we go through. He uses it for His glory. Our past sin does not stop good. Does not stop God. Our present is in His grip. And our future is secure in the last few verses of Romans chapter 8. Paul concludes that chapter by saying, what should we say to these truths? God gave us His Spirit. We're overcoming sin. The Spirit is interpreting for us. God's working all things together for good. There's no condemnation. What do we say to these things? He says, is there anything that can stop God? Is there anything? Nothing. There's nothing that can stop Him. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Is he going to be the one who accuses us? No. He's the one who saved us. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not height, not depth, nor anything that's been created. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth. No spiritual authority or being or power. Nothing present, nothing past, nothing future will separate us from the love of God because the love that He has for us is in Christ Jesus. It's because of what He has done for us on the cross. And so, Paul says, hold to these truths. Hold them. Stand fast. Hold to these truths, these inward truths. And the third thing in this inward truth is that God gave us a good hope through grace. The very last part of chapter 16, he gave us a good hope through grace. Here, here's what that means. It means that all of the benefits of being a follower of Jesus are not guaranteed to us on the basis of our performance. They're guaranteed to us on the basis of God's sovereign love. 
His divine choice to love us no matter what happens, come hell or high water. Jesus puts it this way. (laughs) Excuse me, Jesus through Paul. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Here's, Here's the joy of that, believers, saints, people of God. What that means is that you who are here this morning, you're struggling. You got sin. You're still battling and you're, you're frustrated and you, you feel wearied. And you just think, man, if there's just some way I could just get back up on top. If I have just a few more devotions. If I just show up to the 1030 service on time. If I, if I just, you know, worship with more passion and fervency, if I just memorize a few more Bibles or read the next book, or if I, if I just go to that seminar or attend that retreat, and if I, if I, I, I've just got to climb back up to this place where God is okay with me again. Guys, God is okay with you now. He loves you. He knew about your sin and your struggles before He saved you. Is it somehow different now that you're trying to walk with him? Now that you're fighting it out, is he frustrated and disappointed and waiting for you to stick your nose in the corner long enough that you've done enough payment for your sin and now all of a sudden we can be cool again? No. You see, all of this comes to us on the basis of God's grace and not our own merit. It's the beauty of the good news of the gospel. Again, let me resource uh, Spurgeon as we move to our next point, this outward truth. Not only did he say hold on to the inward truth that God loves us, God gave us eternal comfort, and God gave us a good hope through grace, but he wants them to hold to an outward truth that God gave us work to do and God gave us something to say. Verse 17, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So the same God who loved you, who gave you eternal comfort and gave you a good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Here's what Spurgeon says about this. Some Christian people think that word should be everything and work nothing. But the scriptures are not of their mind. These professors speak a great deal about what they will do. They talk a great deal about what other people ought to do and a great deal more about what others fail to do. And so they go on with word, word, word and nothing else but word. They do not get as far as work but the apostle put work first in this case. Isn't that great? You see... The word and the work are inseparable. Amen. See, here's the thing. I, 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 let, me, let me give you an example. I, I have a, a young man who's a friend of mine that I, I've been discipling and talking about, and he has wrestled with pornography throughout the course of his young adult life. And that sin has just had its hooks in him and just pulled at him and pulled at him and pulled at him and he will repent and, 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 
and be, have success for a season and then fall back into it. And it's just this cycle that never seems to stop. And, and his response, as we were talking, his response has been, I'm just gonna, I just need to press in, is what he'd say. I just need to press in. I need to read. I just need to know more. I just need to understand. And I, finally I stopped. I said, stop it. Don't read another verse until you've done what it says. The point of reading is to do and live in the truth. It is not an endless mental exercise of, of, of just gathering information. The point of the scriptures is to tell us how to live in life. Now, it's not an endless laundry list of things to do, but it gives instruction for us, words that are to be applied to our walk with Jesus. You see... Here's the outward truth. God gave us work to do. And God gave us something to say, to talk about what Jesus has done, to give out the gospel, to make sure that people understand. So get busy, Paul is saying to these Thessalonian believers. Stand firm in the truth. Be rooted in God's love. Let that stuff just give you a sure footing so that you're unmovable and unshakable. May the love of God be at work in you. and The hope in you just continuing to draw you forward as you faithfully trot out the work that God has for you to do. As the word of God is at work in you and it's, it's living through you and coming out your mouth to the world around you. We cannot separate word and work. So thirdly, we get to Paul's request of the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Two things that Paul requests of the Thessalonians. First of all, pray for power. <laughs> Paul's looking at the Thessalonian church. He's like, hey, man, I, I don't think I barely scratched the surface with you in four weeks of the things that I could talk to you about. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament, right? There was a lot that Paul had to say. I, I doubt he covered it in four weeks. He's like, look what God did in you. Look at that. You got saved. Your heart was changed. You're different. You're continuing to walk with the Lord, facing persecution. You haven't given up. Now pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us that what God did in you, he will continue to do as we preach the gospel. What God did in you, say, God, do it again. Make it happen again. Call your people again. And listen, some of you in this room, you've got people in your life that you want, you long to see their salvation. You long for it. I want you you to remember something. There was a time you did not know God. 
God pursued you. He tore whatever blinders and excuses and whatever things you had held up as barriers to not trust him, to not follow him, to not believe him. He tore all that stuff away and supernaturally he revealed himself to you. And in that moment, you put your faith in him and your heart was changed and the spirit entered in and you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. That was a sovereign work of the hand of the Lord. Pray. Pray. Ask God to work in those hearts and lives. Those people that you love about. Love them enough to take them before the Lord and keep taking them before the Lord. Hey God, remember my brother. Hey Lord, remember my uncle. Save him. You did it for me. Do it over there too. Do it there too. Do it for my neighbor and do it for my friend. God, continue to save what you did in me. Do it again. So the first request of Paul is pray for power for the gospel. Second of all, pray for protection from our enemies. In verse 2 he says, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. Not everybody's friendly to us. Not everybody trusts the lordship of Jesus. Now, Paul really sees the world in one of two categories. There were, there were those who wanted to hinder the work of the gospel. And, that, and Paul either wanted deliverance from such men or he wanted them to be changed into godly men. He's <laughs> like, okay, you're, if you're not for us, I'm praying that you get saved and you become for us. And if, if you're going to continue to not be for us, then I pray that you won't distract us <laughs> from what we have to do here. Because the work of salvation is real. And the fields are white and ready for the harvest. And we've got some things to tell people. So don't hold us back. So we see Paul's request in prayer from the Thessalonians. And finally, we see Paul's reassurance for the Thessalonians. Verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. Now it's connected to the previous verse, for not all have faith. And then he says, but the Lord is faithful. And he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Here's the first thing he says, verse 3. I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. The king is faithful. The king will guard you. The king is protective. I trust him. Look what he did in you. How could I not trust him? You have had every opportunity to say Kaiser Curios. You have had every opportunity to deny, to push away. Matter of fact, if there's any church that should have failed, Thessalonians, it's you guys. But look at what God has done. Look at what he's done. How can I not trust him? The king is faithful. And the king is protective of what is his. Boy, if you could only know the invisible battle that rages in this room even now. The, the myriad of ways that our enemy wants to steal away the truth of God's word from your heart. 
and make you forget these realities. The way your own flesh is rebelling and resisting and trying to get away from and squirm out from under truth. The ways in which the world is preaching a false gospel that joy and happiness and satisfaction is found in Netflix or the next financial decision that you make or the next job or the next house that you have or the next car that you drive. If you could only see the subversive ways that the enemy wants to wreck your family, wants to ruin your marriage, you know why? Because he's looking three generations down. And he knows if he can proclaim a false gospel that there is no such thing as unconditional love being modeled by mom and dad, that he can grab the hearts of those children and tell them, see, you can't trust that love is unconditional and that will carry on to the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and he knows the insidious sick devastating effects of sin in the lives of his people and he is plotting and yet God is guarding God is protecting sanctifying keeping his people The king is faithful. And like any good king, the king is protective. So he says, in reassurance to the Thessalonians, I trust the Lord. Verse 4, and I trust you. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. He's like, you guys are living it right now. And you will continue to live it. Now, there were those who wanted to hinder the work of the gospel. And at one point, the Thessalonians who became a church were that group of people, right? But God changed them and transformed them. God delivered them and made them good and godly men, good and godly women. He changed them. And gave them hearts to hear. These Thessalonians had been transformed. And he said, that was the work of God in you. And you're listening. And you're responding. And I see the fruit of that in your lives. I trust God with you. And I trust you with God. Continue in that pattern. Keep doing it. Lastly, he commits them to the Lord. And his reassurance. Verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. As we finish this section of Scripture from 2 Thessalonians, Paul commends the church there to God. In these words, Paul recognized that though he can partner with God and remind the Thessalonian believers of the truth, he was powerless to hold their faith together. So he wraps up this section by simply saying this. May the Lord, the Kyrios, the King, direct your hearts to the love of God and give you the steadfastness, the ability to keep standing in the same way that Jesus at the cross kept standing, kept enduring, maintained faithfulness. May the steadfastness of Christ himself be imparted to you as a gift from the Holy Spirit. See, Paul's greatest legacy was 
that as an apostle, he trusted God to do what he wanted to in the lives of the people that he calls. The reason that he could leave the Thessalonian believers after only three Sabbaths of visiting with them was that he trusted God to lead them. Even though the chips were stacked against these young Christians, Paul was confident that he would see them still standing. Still standing. In the first service, before the service began, I was back there and praying over the words I was about to preach and was reminded of a passage in Zechariah chapter 4. You can turn there if you like and we'll wrap up with this final Note here. Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 4. Here's the, here's the scoop. What's happening is that there is a, um, there's a work project that the people of Israel are beginning to rebuild the temple. But over the course of time, it's just been such conflict. It's been so difficult that they've, they've kind of just grown weary in doing what is well. Right? And so God gives Zechariah this vision. Verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 4, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there's, there's two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said, to the angel that talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, the guy who's rebuilding the temple. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. And then I said to him, well, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? Okay, so here's, here's the idea. Here's what's happening. They are tired in rebuilding the temple. They have grown weary. There's lots of conflict and they are struggling to rebuild the temple after their captivity. God sends a vision to Zechariah the prophet, and it's of this golden lampstand. It's the menorah. It's got bowls, reservoirs for oil, and there's two olive trees beside the lampstand, and those pipes from the olive trees are connected to, or from the lampstand are connected to the olive trees. In other words, the, the lamp is continually, eternally fueled by these olive trees that are standing there, feeding oil to the lamp so that it never runs out. And then this is the word of the Lord to Israel, to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Those of you who have despised the days of small things, you're like, oh, we're building again. I want you to see 
My word is going to be accomplished. My will will be accomplished through the working of my spirit. I'm just going to keep moving you forward. I'm going to keep pressing you in, and you're going to put the capstone on this baby because I'm going to make this happen. This is my work. It's not yours. I want to close with just a word for the weary. For you, stay-at-home mom who wipes boogers and cleans butts and does laundry and does dishes and you're on this sort of endless hamster wheel of activity that never really seems to stop and you're underappreciated. Don't despise the day of small things. God's working. He's moving you. Keep standing. For you, the guy who goes to work day in and day out, you want to be used by the Lord, but you know, you feel ill-equipped and you're, you're struggling. And for you, dear brother or sister who's caught in sin and it's a perpetual cycle and you are just grinding it out and fighting and repenting and getting back up and only to fall again and repent again and, and get back up and only to fall again and repent and get back up. Don't grow weary. Keep standing. Continue to stand. God is faithful. He will get you there. It's not by your might. It's not by your power. It's by the working of the Holy Spirit. He's going to continue to pull you forward. He's going to continue to draw you to Himself. He's going to continue to shape you. And little by little, you're going to get victory. Little by little, He's going to keep pulling away the things that are attached to you that do not resemble Jesus. He's going to shape you. Keep standing. For those of you who have grown weary because of trials, because of difficulty, because you're facing things that seem impossible, keep standing. God is faithful. He's leading. And he'll see you through. I can tell you in my life as a pastor, I've been a pastor for 17 years now, And there are many times throughout the course of my life that I have felt and wondered, like, should I still be pastoring at this moment? There were times where I was proclaiming truths on Sunday that I was afraid of on Saturday and Sunday after church. There was times for me where I was saying things with certainty that I knew to be true that honestly in my heart I didn't feel were true wrestle with my faith. It's hard sometimes. But all the while, here's God. It just keeps pulling. It just keeps drawing me. Seasons where I thought I was losing my faith and now I look back and go, that was the, the greatest moment and gift of brokenness that God ever brought into my life when he tore me down to the foundation and asked me, what do you really believe and what do you really know? And I had to search the scriptures for myself rather than listen to a pastor and have him regurgitate some fact or information to me. 
when I had to own my faith and it was a struggle and I wondered, man, what, what makes me different than the Mormon with the burning in the bosom or the, the Islamic guy who, who has a, a vision of Muhammad or the, or the Buddhist who sucked enough yogurt to finally reach nirvana? What makes me different? And in the midst of that, God has continued to pull me forward. Listen, dear precious saints, keep standing because God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these reminders. Now, Lord, breathe life into these truths by your Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, make your word living in us. May these not be philosophical truths to tuck away for another day, but may they be the foundation of our logic and the way that we think about our life and the world around us. Let your word wash over our hearts and expose any lie that we have believed. Let it comfort and strengthen and encourage and correct. God, may it establish us so that we will remain standing. Amen. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. You are dismissed. <laughs>